Chapter 4 The Myth of the Iranian Parent If my parents were a pie chart, they would look a little like something like this one. In the pie chart, there is 25% traditional and 75% super cool. And yet, one might assume strict conservative, diabolical monsters with foreign accents raised me. Only the foreign accent part of that statement is true. My mom and dad defied most of the stereotypes regularly associated with the Persian parents. This chapter would probably have a whole lot more conflict if Ali and Troy Sadie were more like Andre Gassi's militant Tehran raised dad, and I might be a tennis champion today. But I was raised by open-minded liberals whose philosophies on parenting boiled down to these three words. We trust you. But for anyone who's more familiar with the strict foreign parent archetype in popular culture, let's break down the stereotypes associated with Persian moms and dads. Stereotype 1. Persian parents allow their kids to choose from only four occupations. Doctor, lawyer, dentist, and engineer. Ethnic backgrounds aside, most parents would be immensely proud if their children pursued any of the above occupations. They're stable, lucrative, and highly respectable professions. But my parents didn't have a hard, fast rules about our career aspirations. One of the many downsides of immigrating from one country to another is that you're not always left with the option to follow your dreams. My dad had a degree in mechanical engineering from Louisiana State University. But since he was undocumented, it was impossible for him to get hired for jobs that fit his qualifications. My mom's biggest regret in life was that she never went to college. Even in the pre-revolution Iran of the 1970s, higher education wasn't exactly a priority for women. She married young, threw herself into motherhood, and had to adjust to a new culture and language when she moved to America. Enrolling in college was a luxury she couldn't afford. In the early days of living here, she went from working at a local sizzler to becoming a nanny. Eventually, she joined my dad to help manage their small business. Peninsula Luggage was a sales and repair shop in San Mateo, a town about 30 miles north of where we lived. It was owned and operated by my uncles, but when they moved on to start a home appraisal business, my dad bought them out. My parents ran the shop together. It wasn't what they imagined doing with their lives, but they needed an income to pay the rent and to save enough money to buy a house one day. Even though I helped out some weekends for a measly $3 an hour under the table because I was an undocumented immigrant, they never expected their kids to follow in their footsteps. Growing up in the United States meant that we, unlike our parents, had the privilege of exploring what, if anything, we were passionate about. This is America, they'd say. You can do anything you set your mind to. I'm not positive that the word anything included an acting career, but in my, by high school, I was convinced that being in the movies was my destiny. You know how some celebrities wax um, poetic in interviews about how they just, they just knew that they'd be famous? Well, that's how I felt too. My parents didn't seem to blink an eye when I informed them of my future plans. Though it's entirely possible they had to excuse themselves from the room so they could giggle hysterically at me in private. She thinks she can be an actress? Mwahahaha. They knew I had an unhealthy obsession with movies and television shows, and they were partially to blame. They seemed to have little concept of what was inappropriate to show to an eight-year-old, 
In second grade, my mom took me to the theater to see R-rated films like Rain Man and Cocktail. I was probably the only child in America who was horrified when Dustin Hoffman forgot to thank Tom Cruise in his Oscar obsession speech for the best actor in 1989. I'm also relatively certain other teenagers in my neighborhood did not wake up at 5 in the morning along with publicists and studio heads just so they could watch the Oscar nominations announced live. When a school camping trip in Yosemite conflicted with the Academy Awards, I briefly considered starting a petition to have the trip postponed. But my mom promised me that she taped the broadcast. Yes, before DVR, DVR was invented, we actually had to insert a VHS tape into a VCR in order to record anything we wouldn't be home to watch. Times are really tough, especially since no one actually understood how to program their VCRs. From then on, I was allowed to skip school on the day of the Oscars, which was a Monday back then, because I considered it a national holiday. Truth be told, I don't know if I was as fascinated with acting as much as I was with the cult of celebrity. More specifically, the world of Winona Ryder. During my teen years, she was my number one girl crush. You may know her as the mom from Stranger Things, but in the 90s, Winona was the it girl. She was as iconic as Jennifer Lawrence is today. She dated guys like Johnny Depp and Matt Damon. She was a modern-day Audrey Hepburn, with the delicate features necessary to pull off a pixie cut. I once spotted her at a U2 concert in Oakland and literally screamed at the top of my lungs, Winoa, I love you. Winoa, I want to be you. She scurried away as quickly as possible. I was convinced that one day, little old Persian me would get famous and I would get to play her younger sister, less attractive, somewhat ethnically ambiguous sister in movies. If you're too young to comprehend the power of Manoa, then I suggest you stream the following movies immediately after finishing this book. 1. Heathers. 2. Welcome Home Roxy Carmichael. 3. Edward Scissorhands. 4. Mermaids. 5. Reality Bites. The best part of Manoa was that she lived in San Francisco and grew up in the Bay Area just like me. We were homies. When I read an interview with her in Vogue that she mentioned she got her start at the Act Young Conservatory in San Francisco, I decided that I was listening to follow in her footsteps. My parents were like, cool, we'll pay for that even though we totally can't afford it. Follow your pipe dream, honey. Yay, America. For most of my childhood, I thought all dads worked six days a week. But then I began to notice that most of my friends' fathers took Saturdays and Sundays off. When I asked to take acting classes in San Francisco, my dad didn't point out the fact that he had already commuted 40 minutes to work each day, and that this would mean driving me an hour into the city on his only day off. He seemed excited to spend the quality father-daughter time together in the car, and waited around the city until I got out of class. I decided to make a note of that sacrifice so that I could reference it in my future poignant Oscar acceptance speech. But before we could shell out the $400 for classes at the Act Young Conservatory, I had to go through an intense interview process with one guy who probably wouldn't let, would let anyone into the program who wasn't a complete psychopath and could afford to pay the tuition fee. I wasn't nervous for my interview. Even though I moved through high school like a puppy lost in a uh, coyote den, I had less fear of adults. I like to think I had an old soul. 
so it was no surprise for me that I hit it off with the head of the program. I tried to act normal as he told me stories of Manoa. He described her as luminous and said that he could tell she was a star from the moment they met. I imagined that in a few years, he'd be sharing the same stories about me. When I left the building and waited on a bustling street corner in Union Square for my dad to pick me up, I felt like I had found my true calling. Being in San Francisco made me feel like I conquered the world. No one in my high school knew it, but I wasn't meant to live in the suburbs. I belonged in a city with a constant stream of traffic noise, busy pedestrians and musicians busking on the sidewalk. This, I thought to myself, this is why the revolution in Iran happened. So I could move to America and become the most famous Persian actress alive. The night after my interview, we ordered Chinese food and my fortune read as follows. The stars of riches is shining upon you. I carefully taped it to my journal for added inspiration. One day, I would look at it and think, Damn, Portugal, you were spot on. But here's what my parents actually helped me discover by driving me to the theater school every week. I totally sucked at acting. How did celebrities make it seem so easy? There were kids in my class who'd been taking courses at act since they were toddlers. They could do the Swahili accents and had mastered the Claire Danes chin tremble on cue. They thought improv games were fun and dropped lines from Tennessee Williams plays in casual conversation. I was just there to get famous and whisker, win an Oscar someday. The most riveting performance I gave during the 12-week session was portraying a stoner at a party. I suddenly began dreading the drive into the city. So when the course ended, I didn't sign up for more classes. I walked away learning a very important lesson. It's no fun to do things you're crappy at. If my parents hadn't gone out of their way to let me take acting classes, then it would have taken me much longer to learn I was more comfortable and hopefully more competent as a writer. My mom and dad failed to point out that writing wasn't exactly the most stable career either. Some might say they were supportive to a fault. To prove it, here is a cringeworthy and terribly written diary excerpt. March 7th, 1997. The other night, my dad told me to write something in my journal. He told me to write, Tonight at 9.28pm on March 5th, my dad told me I would be successful. Who knows? Stereotype 2. Iranian parents are really strict. Like most immigrant parents, my mom and dad made it abundantly clear that they had high expectations of their offspring. A common refrain in our household was, we didn't move all this way to this country so you could blank. Fill in the blank with any number of deeds. Get C's in your report card, talk back to us, or leave the house dressed like a cheap hooker. We had a curfew set for 11.30pm, and we were always told to call whenever we arrived at our intended destination. But we were also permitted to leave the house and go to parties and sleepovers. It might not be the most popular parenting style, but they really believed if they trusted our judgment, then we wouldn't have the urge to rebel. My sister was the resident troublemaker in the house, but even she was tame compared to most teenagers. She drank and smoked pot occasionally, but she was also an A student and widely known as the most responsible girl in the squad. The one who was most likely to help her friends after they'd pass out from a night of drinking, okay, except at the Aerosmith concert, and the person who usually volunteered to be a designated driver. Most of my American friends had way stricter rules in their household. 
For instance, my best friend, Izzy, wasn't allowed to spend the night at my place because her mom felt there wasn't enough adult supervision in the Sadie home. That wasn't entirely untrue. My parents were social creatures, and they figured if I had a friend spending the night and keeping me busy, it gave them the perfect opportunity to go to a nice dinner at the Olive Garden or bust a move at a family party. After all, they trusted me. But really, my parents spent in everything they knew and loved because they didn't want their daughters to grow up with a strict religious code. Why inflict the same rules on us in America? They wanted us to cruise through the quaint streets of downtown Los Gatos with friends. They wanted us to get, go to dances and parties that included members of the opposite sex. They were okay if we drank, as long as we drank responsibly and never drove. Most of all, they wanted us to take advantage of every opportunity afforded to us by living in the United States. In my not-so-humble opinion, I believe that immigrants are the true American patriots. We never take living in this country for granted. We still had family in Iran, and we knew how complicated and difficult their lives were under. The new regime. Back then, we heard stories of teenagers who were beaten by the police for attending a co-ed party. My own cousin was arrested and whipped by the police for getting caught socializing with the opposite sex. They detained him until my aunt and uncle bribed the police for his release. And that's precisely why my baba and mama tried to give us the space to live our lives. Why bring their kids to America and not let them enjoy the freedoms they wouldn't have been permitted in Iran? Stereotype 3. Iranian parents are conservative zealots. Yes and no. My parents were terrified by the thought of their daughters dating, making out with boys, or, God forbid, being sexually active. These were rights they didn't think I needed from the tender age of 14 to 25. But even when it came to talks of dating or future spouses, my sister and I never were never pressured to marry someone Iranian. My parents knew the dating pool was already small enough and that the only way we'd connect with an Iranian guy was if he'd been raised in America like us. They loved the idea of a guy entering our family who could speak Farsi. But they even warned us against future Iranian in-laws. They're too involved with their kids, my mom would say. They'll just try to stick their nose in your business. You're better off marrying someone American. This was a huge relief, since I had officially moved on from Leonardo DiCaprio and had plans to spend the rest of my life with Ethan Hawke. My parents also considered themselves atheists and raised us as such. They were brought up in Muslim. They were brought up as Muslim, but came to America as infidels. In their opinion, religious rule had damaged the country they once loved. Even though they would say things like "Koad Nakonen," God forbid, and "Inshallah, God willing," and "Chegda Koda Ram Kard," God was really watching out for us. They didn't necessarily believe in God or Allah. But they also didn't understand why we had so many friends who tried to convert us into becoming Christians. When my brother was five, he returned from a church barbecue he attended with a friend and announced, Jesus is in my bones. My dad was like, um, no, Jesus is not in your bones. Marrow is in your bones and calcium and collagen. I knew my parents respected other people's beliefs, but they also considered religion a way to comfort oneself from the inevitable, the eternal abyss of nothingness, obviously which is why I had a habit of debating my most religious friends in high school. I couldn't believe they thought I was going to hell unless I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But I'm a really good person, I would remind them. All we can do is just pray for you, they respond. 
fine. While you're at it, pray that my boobs come in and that a halfway decent looking boy with a good heart and kind hands will want to touch them. I was tempted to respond. But they did more than just pray for me. They actually tried to convert me. It almost worked, thanks to the undeniably holy powers of a hot guy with a skateboard. Our near romance started when one of my best friends, Rebecca, invited me to go to a wedding sleepaway camp with her youth group. She promised it wouldn't be overly religious, so I agreed to check it out. She lied, which I'm pretty sure was against her religion. It turned out I had signed up for a weekend of prayer and singing hymns about Jesus, but everyone was so generous and welcoming that I had tried tried to keep an open mind about my potential as a Christian. That said, none of the members of the youth camp caught my attention as much as a smoldering boy named Eric, who didn't seem to know any of the lyrics to the hymns we were singing either. We made solid eye contact at least four times throughout the weekend, so I think it's pretty uh, on point to say that he was in love with me. I decided that if he asked, I would 110% convert to Christianity for him. When I came home from the weekend and told my parents I wanted to permanently join the youth group, my dad said I wasn't allowed. Before you criticize him for discouraging me from Christian theology, keep in mind that he and my mom had negative experiences with organized religion. Their decision to raise us as atheists was no different from any other family's decision to raise their kids Christian or Jewish. Strangely enough, my religious friends were the ones who were either doing all the drugs or having all the sex in high school. Meanwhile, my uterus was lined with dust and cobwebs, and I was certain if I ever tried LSD or mushrooms, I would die from an instant heart attack. But according to my religious friend's strict beliefs, I was the one who would go straight to hell. I still struggle to see the logic in that. So if this chapter had a thesis statement, it would be, Surprise! My parents are cool! But I can't neglect the other 25% of that pie chart. Their views on sex and drugs are worthy of their own chapter, but there were a lot of other things we didn't agree with. Starting with number one, my best friend's cleavage. Izzy McConnell wasn't one of my religious friends. She came from a family of bohemian hippies. At least they seemed bohemian compared to my friends, my parents. I loved Izzy's mom and dad and spent endless hours hanging out at their house, but I found Izzy's mom to be a contradiction in terms. I once heard her whisper to Izzy that I had left breadcrumbs in her porcelain sink. She was notoriously compulsive about keeping their home spotless, and yet every nook and cranny of their house was filled to the brim with tightly organized clutter. I had never seen that many beanie babies in one place. Izzy was not allowed to drink, under any circumstances, but Mrs. McConnell had no qualms about Izzy staying behind closed doors with her French exchange student boyfriend, a polar opposite parenting style from my parents. She didn't allow Liz Izzy to drive in cars with anyone who'd recently gotten their driver's license. But on the flip side, and like on the rest, unlike the rest of us, she was free to wear whatever she wanted. There was no, there was never a no daughter of mine will leave the house looking like that conversation in the McConnell home. Izzy was an incredibly talented artist and treated fashion like another art f- form of self-expression. Since Izzy's mom never threw anything away, she'd kept every article of clothing she'd owned in the 60s and 70s. And since those decades were back in style during the 90s, we had a bevy of bell-bottoms, embroidered hippie tops, and flowing floral dresses to share between us. Some people thought Izzy dressed weird, but I thought she was a trailblazer. Izzy was also well-endowed in the boob department, 
and prefer to sport as much cleavage as possible without revealing areola. My parents definitely questioned why Izzy felt the urge to show so much boobage when their daughters never opted for low-cut tops. To be fair, I didn't have any cleavage. To be less fair, my sister did, and she preferred turtlenecks and t-shirts and flannels. I became so stressed out about Izzy's boobs that I would pray to a god I wasn't technically supposed to believe in that she'd choose a less revealing top whenever she came over to my house. I know, I know, I know. It's not fair to judge a woman for owning her sexuality. We're not allowed as a society to criticize a person for topless selfies anymore. But back in the 90s, selfies didn't exist. We lived in a different world. A world where too much cleavage on a high school girl was still disarming. I was never embarrassed enough to ask Izzy to mix the, mix the cleavage when she was around my family. But when she did come over in her low-cut tops, it's possible that my parents started to wonder if Islamic law wasn't such a bad thing. I don't think it was Izzy's boobs that were the problem. It was what her boobs represented. The fear that my nearest and dearest American friend might influence me in ways they didn't want me to be influenced. And they were right. Because if it weren't for Izzy, I wouldn't have loved shopping at... Number two, thrift stores. My parents never openly discussed their money struggles, but I knew we didn't have disposable income. Our idea of vacation was two days of car camping or a night spent at the Napa Valley Embassy Suites so we could swim in their indoor pool. For most of high school, I had to go over to Izzy's house to type my papers because we couldn't afford a computer. And yet my parents thought I was mentally incompetent for buying clothes at Goodwill. Why did I need used clothing when they were happy to give me a weekly allowance? And when thanks to having finally having a social security number, I was making my own money. More importantly, why did I have an affinity for velour sweaters that resembled my dad's 1972 wardrobe and smelled like someone who had taken their last breath in them? You don't get it, I tell them. Grunge is in. The only thing that disturbed my mom more than my clothing choices was my tendency to over-accessorize. Izzy loved rings and wore one each, every finger, so I quickly did the same. Subtle and delicate was not the jewelry trend back then. Instead, we wore massive silver rings with brightly colored jewels and plenty of marcasite. The trend continued into college. My mom's head nearly exploded when I went to an appointment at the Immigration Naturalization Office, INS, sporting my collection of sterling silver. I politely told my mom to pull it together. After years of living in the country illegally, illegally I had a sneaking suspicion that my tacky taste in jewelry would not be grounds for deportation. Number three, bad manners. Iranians give the Brits a run for their money in the polite department. We're trained to give up our seats to anyone older than us and to refer to our elders with titles of respect. We never talk back to our parents. There's like 500 different ways to say thank you in the Farsi language. One of our more common phrases is Daste Shoma Dar Nakone, which literally translates to May your hand not hurt. You generally say this when someone has to do a meal. The worst crime you commit as a Persian human is to not have hot tea, pastries, cucumbers, nuts, and a basket of fruit at the ready when someone enters your house. Not to generalize, but the being OCD about manners isn't exactly considered a quintessential American trait. And it wasn't for my high school social circle. For starters, I had friends who didn't feel the need to say hello to my parents whenever they came over to my house. 
Perhaps they were intimidated by their foreignness, but I can still remember how my anxiety skyrocketed when my mom whispered to me in Farsi, What's wrong with your friend? Is she mute? Why can't she even say hello? I had to train my friends to greet my parents the moment they saw them. There were also times I witnessed heated arguments between my friends and their moms that left me in a catonic state. I couldn't believe anyone could get away with telling their mom to shut up. I was smart enough to know you were never meant to say such words out loud. You were meant to scribble them in a diary, hidden under the confines of a mattress. But there were moments when my parents reprimanded me, and I tried to defend myself by talking back. Big mistake. Huge. You've been hanging out with your American friends too much, they'd say in their sternest of tones. You might be thinking, that's kind of racist. Or maybe really racist. But one of my parents' biggest fears after we immigrated to America was that we would abandon the most significant qualities of Iranian culture. Our morals, our loyalty to and love for our family. Our hospitality. And the lifelong desire to be kind and polite to others. At any sign that these virtues were slipping away, they began to panic that it had been wrong for them to bring us here. Maybe we would have been better off staying in Iran after all. If you're still not getting it, just picture what it would be like if you and your entire family abruptly moved to France. Let's pretend your parents were die-hard patriots. If you came home waxing poetic about socialism and menage a trois, then they might be a little freaked out too. In the end, what I respected the most about my parents was that they didn't that when we didn't see eye to eye on certain topics, we were permitted to have a respectful dialogue. They had brought us to America for the sole reason of giving us a better life, and they didn't want that life to become an impediment to our relationship. The idea of their children growing up and no longer relating to them was a terrifying prospect. They knew the only way to avoid the inevitable cultural divide was conversation and compromise. Even if it took a long and heated debate about the dangers of sterling silver jewelry to get to a place of mutual understanding, no topic was off limits in our household. As much as their parenting philosophy was, we trust you, it was also, you can trust us. Diary Entry the September 15, 1996 I stayed home tonight and ate Chinese with my baba. I love my family so much. They are extremely open-minded and easygoing. Me and Baba talked about things like boys and sex for an hour. We had the best conversation. I'm so thankful for my family. I'm so unbelievably lucky. It would be a blessing for me to grow up and become like my parents. Frequently asked question number two. What do Iranians have against Sally Field? Sally Field is widely considered one of the best actresses of our time, but she's been a persona non grata with Iranians after she started starred in one of the overly racist film Not Without My Daughter. It doesn't matter that the movie was released more than 25 years ago because Iranians have a flair for holding lifelong grudges. The film painted Iranian Muslims, particularly Iranian men, in a very negative light. It pretty much made them all seem like abusive pricks. It also released at the time when a Gulf War was brewing, and when there were no other representations of Iranians in TV shows and movies. There still aren't very many representations, aside from the occasional terrorist character or the reality show Shahs of Sunset, also considered a form of terrorism to some. In Not Without My Daughter, Sally Field plays an American woman trapped in Iran with a psycho husband who won't allow her to leave the country with their young daughter. 
The film was based on the popular and controversial memoir by Betty Mahamudi and was critically panned for its racist depictions and Islamophobic tendencies. Though many compared it to a bad TV movie, it had lasting implications for Iranians. In the 2016 New York Magazine article, The Not Without My Daughter Problem, How a Sally Field Movie Became an Iranian-American Headache, writer Gazelle Imani talks, talks to Iran writer and scholar Reza Aslan about on the, how the film affected his dating life. I am not joking when I say to you that at least one on three separate occasions when I met a girl's parents or immediately after I'd met their parents, a girl would tell me how their mo- her mother brought up not without my daughter. There was this one case in particular where on the second date, the girl asked, I can't really date you anymore. My mom doesn't want me to see each other. I said, why? And she goes, well, she saw the movie not without my daughter. I have numerous Iranian friends who have the exact same story. It ruined dating for every male Iranian of my generation. For some reason, sexism, Alfred Molina, who played the abusive Iranian father, escaped our wrath. Eventually, Sally Field earned back her goodwill with my family when she starred in the ABC drama Brothers and Sisters. My parents loved that show. They thought the Walker family was just like us. Except for the fact that they were American, owned a swanky food supply business in the quaint town of Ojai, and lived in the giant house in a very expensive Pasadena neighborhood. But those minor differences aside, my parents stand by the fact that we were basically the Iranian and undocumented version of Nora Walker and her dysfunctional brood. Diary entry, August 6, 1996. I bought a book called Go Ask Alice. It's actually a teenager's diary. She's a really normal 15-year-old until she gets hooked on acid and pot. Toward the end of the book, she's getting her life together after all the drugs, running away from home twice, torment at school, and being in a mental hospital. There were a lot of things I could relate to about her. The whole diary thing connected me right away. Then at the epilogue, they inform you that the subject of the book died three weeks later from a drug overdose. I'm going to make my friend, all my friends, read it.